Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast that occasionally looks at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. And this week, plugging a hole, we're taking a discussion of William Shatner's 1989 Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing well, Darren. I am your guest at the Warren. Uh, the Darren Warren? Darren. Um, is, is that what my name would be if I appeared in Star Trek V? <laughs> I would also possibly have three breasts and be a cat woman. Um. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and and the milk this morning. Um, can you explain? <laughs> <laughs> Where that came from. Yeah. Well, yeah, because um, I know I very famously am a person who has lots of milk uh, in, in my house. I'm, I'm very conscious of, like, my guests. I also have coffee. Well, you need Instagram. to express yourself. <laughs> Through milk. Is that right? <laughs> I have nipples, Greg. Can you milk me? Um, but yes, so we're talking about Star Trek V, the, the Final Frontier. This is obviously a product of a recording weekend where we've done several episodes that maybe involved a bit more research. And it's also possibly going to be released at a point where we just have nothing else to release. So I suspect this may be the first episode of 2024. So Happy New Year, Andrew. Or the, or the last episode of 2023. Yes. Like where, where we uh, re- release this um, on a Sunday <laughs> in, in, order, in order to get the... Um, the 52-episode yeah. count. Um, I love that you're... At- I, I love that I was like, we should aim for 52. You're like, no, we are doing 52. Um, <laughs> we should, yeah, release trash. <laughs> <laughs> I think you suggested at one point we record an episode while watching the movie that we're going to cover next, <laughs> which we are perilously close to doing uh, when it comes to this one. But yes, we are talking about Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Uh, obviously, like most of our Star Trek episodes, we're recording a bunch of episodes this weekend, and this is just one that I think both of us can yeah, talk about comfortably. There's a big the screen in front of us. <laughs> <laughs> I could actually start playing it on that screen if you wanted. Yeah. Um, I could convert it into 3D if you want. That is a 3D television for retro to make everybody feel like it's 2013 all over again. But Star Trek V. We should be we should be challenging our minds more to listen uh, um, to the movie <laughs> while watching it. Uh, listen in, in your left ear. And I'm listening to Darren in my right ear. And, I'm and, to, and yeah. What well, W... Um, <laughs> WWDD. What, what, what would Data do? <laughs> um, but that's a question we won't have to answer for at least one more Star Trek-themed <laughs> movie podcast. Because this is the final one. This is the last of our podcasts covering the original series movies. Because obviously we did... This whole podcast is out of order. <laughs> <laughs> In a very literal sense, yes. Uh, but because we started with Star Trek Six, which I think is our favorite of yeah. these movies. And so, Andrew, do you remember the first time you saw The Final Frontier? Do you remember your impressions of it? I'm guessing it's like similar to um, to my experience of uh, the rest of one to six, and that it it was it, it it I I I I think it's quite possible that I watched it after watching Generations in the cinema, possibly. I'm not certain, but um, it, it would have been about that time. The time where it's like peak track. Yes. I think we talked about this before, the 30th anniversary coming up, where you had, between generations, 
Voyager and Deep Space Nine, you had three Star Trek shows running concurrently, effectively. You had the First Contact came out for the 30th anniversary. You had the opening of Star Trek The Experience in Las Vegas. You had the celebration of the 30th anniversary the following year with um, Trials and Tribulations, with Flashback. Yeah, Peak Peak Track, I think, is a very fair description of what that was, which is, is interesting. Yeah, Leonard Nimoy on the front of the RT Guide. And I think we've mentioned Patrick Stewart has been on the front of the RT Guide as well. Oh, I'd say so, yeah. But um, when you watched, obviously the Final Frontier has something of a reputation. Um, it is generally regarded as the weakest of the original six Star Trek movies. Uh, it was greeted as such on its initial release. Among fans, that reputation has arguably only grown. It's kind of become something of a pop culture punchline. When you watched it, were you aware of that? Was it something that you came to the movie Pro- already knowing, I mean- or did you pick it up afterwards, or...? Probably not. I would say I, my, my sense of it being that was perhaps just, if I had had to reflect, this probably might have been one of the most forgettable of, of the six, or, or the, no, the most forgettable <laughs> of the six, um, but I wasn't aware of it being a, a, a dud, um, I guess. Or a punching bag, or or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. You know, it's just like one in the series, and like you watch this, you know, because there's there's one in between four and six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like this. This box that you sold me, it has very two, important three, four, yeah. that you watch this vitally <laughs> before watching six, because <laughs> none of that will make any sense <laughs> if you don't follow on directly. Yeah, I mean that that is the Nothing thing. <laughs> We, I mean, we, we, we will we will inevitably get into that, but one of the things, re-watching this last night I was taken by was, A, I definitely remembered bits of this movie, and we'll talk about them when we get into the sports zone. There are moments from this movie that Some I remember. I had forgotten, but yeah, there were definitely moments I, I did remember. Yeah. That was the second part I was going to get to. It, it, there are large parts of this movie I had completely wiped from my memory. It felt like the Star Trek movie I have certainly watched least and I include in that like insurrection and nemesis um, among that, right? Um, and it's 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 kind of interesting because it does feel like. I imagine you would watch Nemesis more than Insurrection. That feels like you're making some sort of judgment on me as a person, but yes, yes, I would. Yeah, because it's probably like it, it's 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 an interesting kind of um, uh, like attempt at a at a Star Trek movie. Yes. It is certainly, it's a more interest, it's probably worse than Insurrection, I think, maybe. Um, I think that's something that we will inevitably discuss in great detail <laughs> on this podcast. But I, I do I do think that Nemesis is more interesting in what it is than Insurrection is. Where I think, like, Insurrection's problems are very obvious, whereas Nemesis's problems are uniquely Nemesonian, um, as it were. But yeah, I, I kind of, I had not watched, I obviously have not watched The Final Frontier as much as I have watched the other five original series Star Trek movies, because watching it, I was like, oh yeah, that's the movie where this happens. That's yeah. the movie where, where this this part slots I, in. I must have watched this since I got my 10 movie box set. Oh no, wait, is it 10? 10 it up is, to Nemesis. It is 10. Yeah, 10 up yeah, to yeah, Nemesis, yeah. yeah. Um, all right then, so I guess little bit of production history here. Most of this will already be known. As you've joked, the people listening to us talk about Star Trek movies, this is their 10th podcast talking about Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. But this is obviously famously directed by William Shatner. 
Shatner had negotiated what he terms a favored nations clause with himself and Nimoy during the TV show, where anything that Shatner got, Nimoy got at the time, because obviously Shatner was the lead of the show, but Nimoy was arguably the breakout star as Spock. That clause initially protected Nimoy from Shatner, but as the franchise went on, as Nimoy's celebrity grew, the balance of power kind of shifted and it came to protect Shatner from Nimoy. So when Nimoy directed Star Trek 3, and in particular Star Trek 4, Shatner was like, hey, everything Nimoy gets, I get. I should get to direct the next Star Trek movie. Uh, apparently, in particular, it was during the salary negotiations over Star Trek 4 that Shatner was like, yeah, no, I if I'm doing this, I'm directing Star Trek 5. So Shatner, despite having no real directorial experience whatsoever, having directed a couple of episodes of T.J. Hooker, the cop show that he starred in during the 70s, he was like, no, I want to direct a Star Trek movie. And the sense that you get from talking both to him and to the people who worked on the movie is that it was really kind of a spite direction thing. He didn't know what he wanted to direct. He just knew that because Nimoy had done it, he wanted to do it. So he honed in fairly early on the idea of telling a story that would be religious in nature. The obvious joke here is that as Kirk, Shatner wanted to give himself an opponent worthy of Kirk, and that opponent was going to be God, the only person in the galaxy who is a viable um, antagonist to that can stand up to Shatner's definition of Kirk. And he goes into production on this. Now, several things happen, which will probably explain a lot about how the movie turns out. The first of which is Shatner does not have a great relationship with his co-stars, uh, which is something we've talked about before, but it obviously boils to a head when he is directing and scripting the movie. Shatner, like, during the hiatus period, during the movie period, he had begun conducting interviews for his own memoirs, for his own books, and was shocked shocked to discover that the rest of the cast didn't adore him and love him. Uh, he was particularly shocked, I think, by Nichelle Nichols and by Walter Koenig, kind of talking about how much they found it unpleasant to work with him. Um, now, that would become a tension in the movie that Shatner was developing. We'll talk about that when we get into the spore zone. But it did make the production of the movie quite difficult. Second thing is that while Nimoy was a very meticulous director, very careful, very clear in what he wanted in the movie... Shatner really didn't seem to have that interest. According to Ralph Winter, the producer of this movie, Shatner would frequently show up on the day and have no idea what he was shooting. He'd just be like, yeah, we'll do that today. This is what we'll do. Very famously, and again, this is something that is disputed among various members of the production team. Some members of the production team just claim the special effects are bad and that no amount of money would have fixed them. Notably, this is the first Star Trek movie since, I believe, the motion picture not to have its special effects done by Industrial Light and Magic. Shatner puts his hands up and takes his credit for that. He says, I was an inexperienced director. I went for the lowest bidder on the special effects options because I figured that was a nice way to save money. But throughout production, Shatner did not budget safely and reasonably. Uh, and you can kind of see that when you watch the movie, where <coughs> there are these huge, lavish sets that are elaborate and beautifully built. And then you get to the climax of the movie, and it's like, so a uh, rock quarry in the desert. Because Shatner had, by that point, already spent all of the budget and had nothing left to pay for the climax of the movie. Um, but yeah, basically, Shatner's inexperience as a director kind of maybe doomed the project or led the project to take the shape that it does, where... This is a movie where the Enterprise has a beautifully elaborate shuttle bay, 
but the climax of the movie feels like it was shot for maybe about $20 and a roll of bubble wrap. But yeah, so before we jump into talking about the movie in more depth, three questions get us started. Andrew, do you think Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Uh, no. No. <laughs> Shockingly. Yeah, yeah. How is your, what is your opinion? Is it the weakest of the, of the six? Yeah, I, I, it, um, I, I mean, I, in, in, in ways, I think, um, the motion picture is, is, is much worse. Really? Actually, yeah. And, and in the sense that I feel this is one of these movies in a way, in a way that I think three, four, five and six are. Um, yeah yeah well it is part of the it's it's part of that harv bennett produced version of star trek the version yeah like the version that connects those four movies and bennett apparently had to be convinced to come back for this bennett apparently had such a bad time working with nimoy and we talked about it on the search for spock we talked about it on the voyage home that apparently shatner had to go to bennett and get him to come back as producer on this um and also to work with him on the story uh notably bennett plays the admiral the head of starfleet command yes um, which is is very interesting as well but yeah, this is a this is very much of a piece with two, three, four, and six, obviously. But really, you would you think that in some ways motion picture is worse than this? Um, yeah. I, I mean, sorry, the motion picture is probably the better movie, but that it doesn't in 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 ways in which I think when we were talking about it, we discussed how interesting yeah. it was um thematically um which i don't think this um has although it has great possibilities <laughs> yes, <I think>. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um in that in that in that vein but that that it doesn't like properly mine i guess um interesting i you don't think that say motion picture is better made as well like just on a nuts and bolts level no um no in in in, like the um motion picture is very boring and and this this movie (laughs) i feel like um it feels short does it okay interesting i felt like yeah yeah i feel i feel like um the the sense i got in the movie is that not much happens yes um and that it doesn't take very long to not not happen. happen yeah interesting because i i I do motion picture nothing happens and it takes forever to not happen yeah yeah Uh, i mean that's interesting because i do i find this is this is a short to be clear this is movie is shorter than star trek 4 right it is significantly shorter it's like 20 to 25 minutes shorter yeah i every time and i checked my own notes from like my review of it back in what 2013 I noted then, and I noted last night, this is a movie that feels much longer than Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And I don't know if it feels quite as long as the motion picture, because the motion picture both feels long and is long. Um, but I, 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 found, I found this quite long as a movie. As you said, nothing really happens in it, and nothing well, yeah, continues I mean, happening in it for a long time. I mean, I, I feel like it's... They have to. They're they're in a place. They have to get to the place. Once they get to the place, they have to go to another place, and then they get there. And um, and the thing. Ha- uh, <laughs> you should be in the pitch room. Shatner should have brought you into the Paramount executives and been like, Andrew will explain it to you. Um, Andrew will help you get it. Hey, there. <laughs> this is like, 
they're they're the closest. <laughs> <laughs> they're the only ship in the sector. Oh, oh. oh we, will, we 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 will talk we will talk about that. Like how much this movie loves Kirk, which is like again, as one might expect from a movie directed by Shatner with a story credit by Shatner. I love that it's like the Enterprise is falling apart. The Enterprise is in bits and pieces. It's not functional in any way, shape, or form. But Harv Bennett pops up on the TV screen and he's like, Jim, this mission needs the Enterprise. This mission needs Jim Kirk. And Kirk like goes, oh, no. But then it's also like, no, it needs you. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it does need me. Like it's, it, The mission doesn't need the Enterprise itself because the Enterprise is falling apart. It doesn't need any other members of the cast. The only person who can solve this problem is James Kirk, which I kind of like. Yeah, I mean, I get the I get the sense that because we're 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 viewers, you know, that we see this um, happening, but that somewhere with a younger crew, something much more important is happening. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, quite literally, then, in the sense that, like, they're shooting the next generation like, as this is happening. Couldn't couldn't you send another ship? It's like they're unimportant. <laughs> they're, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're busy. Um, they're busy. Well, I mean, you know, this this was shooting. Obviously, this was shooting during the second season of Star Trek: The Next Generation. And there's the famous story that, like, Will Wheaton tells about, like, going to visit Shatner while shooting uh, the Final Frontier as a Star Trek fan, and it being, in his own words, the most unpleasant experience of his life where he goes to, like, shake Shatner's hand after a take or whatever, and Shatner looks him up and down and says, in my day, we didn't let kids on the Enterprise, and then just walks off, <laughs> um, which is vintage Shatner. Apparently, Brent Spiner had to, like, console Wheaton when he came back to the set by telling him, I believe the line was, oh, don't worry about Shatner. He's baldy than old baldy over here, pointing at Stuart, um, which is great. I, lo- I love the idea of how petty Shatner could be. Um, he's balder than yeah old than well the toupee it's a joke about it it's a joke about Shatner's toupee Um, but yes so do we ever see Shatner with no hair no and presumably he has hair now yes but I I think that the joke I think it's less full than it appears is the thing I think he does have hair I don't think he is actually balder than Patrick Stewart I think that was just Spiner trying to lighten the mood (laughs) in Spiner's own inimitable way but yeah, so basically, yeah, I, I, it's odd. For myself, definitely not. No, this is obviously not one of the 250 greatest movies ever made. Uh, I think it is the weakest of the original five Star Trek movies. I don't know if it's weaker than Insurrection and Nemesis. I don't know if it's weaker than Nemesis, to be frank. But yeah, I like. I think whatever you can say about the motion picture, and you can, and we did and can say a lot, it's trying stuff. It's, it's sure. like... Yeah. It's taking big swings. It's trying to be literary-minded science fiction, however clumsily it's trying to do that. Uh, it has a purpose and a point. And the, you know, this feels like a placeholder. It's yes. like Shatner. Nobody can say that we didn't give you a movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it was a. It was released in cinemas. <laughs> definitely, people definitely remember it. In the summer of 1989, the summer that gave us, like, The Last Crusade, Batman, Lethal Weapon 2. It's like, yep, The Final Frontier was definitely a movie that existed in the popular consciousness. Um, Yeah, and then second question, would this be on your own personal 250 movies? I mean, like, it, it... I think we've spoken about it before, about how I have these movies, and therefore 
if it was not going to be on my good movie island, I would have to like I'd have an incomplete set. Yeah. yeah. So so yeah, I, f- I feel like just because like yeah, that these are my movies. Um, <laughs> it kind of rubs off between four and six. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I f- I feel like um, for for future generations who who like um, you know they they'd have to take my word for it that um, that five was kind of forgettable. And there'd be this heresy that <laughs> word would that it's actually the best one, and yeah. that he, um, and Andrew had destroyed it for that reason. And and on that desert island, a lone figure would ride through the wilderness on a horse. Yeah, and and tell what whoever was tilling this land on this island that you created that secretly they were going to find Star Trek Five: The Final Frontier. Precisely. Um, yeah, for myself, no. Um, it's like it's it's wouldn't pro- be on. It wouldn't be on my own personal two fifty. How many uh, Star Trek movies would you would you, would you have? Would you have a disproportionate amount, or or would you just note? No, I'm not going to do that. Like I, how 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 objective? How subjective is your? Yeah, I th- I think I think the the point of subjectivity is three. I think three is the floor, right? Where three is the one where I'm like, I think this is a good movie i don't think it's a great movie i don't think it's an important movie i don't think it's a masterpiece of cinema but it will probably be on my own 250 so anything below three kind of drops off so motion picture isn't going to be there this isn't going to be there uh insurrection isn't going to be there generations sorry isn't going to be there really yeah i I find that wild (laughs) like uh, nemesis isn't gonna I be there i think generations is such a good movie have you rewatched it since or are you saving it for when we inevitably get around to it no i haven't watched okay. it in a while yeah okay um well in the recommendations i i have an observation to make but we'll, we'll we'll save that to get there andrew is like already looking at me wondering whether he can murder me um before i get to whatever crazy observation it is is star trek generations the star trek five of next generation movies that is the question that is not the question but um yeah so no it would not be on my my personal 250 and andrew if listeners have not already seen star trek 5 the final frontier would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device it is available on paramount plus like all of the star trek movies um yeah yeah i think if 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 you're going to if you're watching all of them i wouldn't kind of skip this no even though you could I, i i i i enjoy this I think it's fun. I think Spock is very funny in 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 this movie, but that it's it's not as much of a comedy as uh, four. So four was, yeah, yeah. Well, apparently that was the studio's big note. Apparently, the studio's big note was because four was successful, they wanted more humor in five. Yeah, we see. This feels like a kind of a straight down the line Star Trek movie where they're doing kind of Star Trek stuff. But there's like, you know, plenty of jokes in it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess this is maybe a point to talk about it. Darren says, let's delay getting to the spoiler zone as long as possible. But this, to me, feels curiously like an old fashioned version of Star Trek, where like it feels like you you said that you, you know, you you need you jokingly, sarcastically said, yeah, you absolutely need to watch five before you watch six. The idea that you can skip from four to six perfectly logically makes sense. But it's also like this feels like a movie that also like missed the Wrath of Khan, missed the Search for Spock, and missed the Voyage Home. Where yeah, there's there's um I don't think, like he doesn't spoil this movie very much, but 
to like a lack of there's a moment where um say it's like oh the the, the klingons don't like you much and he's like oh the feeling is mutual <laughs> there's a serious lack of pathos but <laughs> <laughs> like, well, they, they just murdered my son really no yeah. no, no biggie um like he does tell repeat- me about it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i hate and mondays too <laughs> yeah yeah but like that that's the thing um that the thing about these movies or this movie in particular is that i think you're right that it is obviously aesthetically of a piece with two three four and six and that like they're wearing the same uniforms the sets look largely the same it doesn't have the same kind of general vibe as the motion picture has it has its own it belongs in that continuity and as we pointed out you already have the cameo from harv bennett as well that kind of ties it into that you know the design of the klingons the uniforms they're wearing the bird of prey all that sort of like it is it is aesthetically of a piece with the movies around it. But like one of the big things about the Star Trek movies, and it's something that we, we've talked about, you know, through this little miniseries that we've done, is that a large part of what these movies are about is about like updating Star Trek beloved cultural property from the 1960s to reflect the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. And the relationship that exists between these icons of 60s pop culture and a world that is changing very rapidly around them. Where, like, you know, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, it's about this idea of growing up, growing old, the idea of, like, consequences and legacy. Like, again, like, continuity. Star Trek II is about continuity. Khan comes back. This one-shot villain from the original show comes back, and you thought you could forget about him, but you can't because that's not how stories work anymore. You know, you have Kirk meeting his own son because he can't just have a fling with a beautiful woman every week and not expect there to be long-term consequences of that. And, you know, that's sort of a large part of it. And then you get into Star Trek Three, which is the search for Spock. And, yeah, that, that pushes back a little bit on the whole idea in Star Trek Two that our heroes are old, out of touch. Maybe their best days are behind them. But you do have within that the idea of Star Trek kind of becoming Star Wars, where you have this idea of, you know, and you mentioned specifically, like, there's a bar scene that is very overtly the cantina scene from Star Wars. But this idea of Star Trek as a living, breathing universe yeah. where actions taken by one species have an impact on the other and these cultures actually have perspectives and there are politics that guide and shape the universe as a living organism with reactions and consequences in a way that wasn't true in 1960s television where the Klingons or the Romulans were you know one thing from one week to the next and where whatever the plot required them to be they were just a set of iconography with no real coherent culture tying them together no consistent worldview no sense of like the geography or the politics of the galaxy but post star wars you're kind of expected to have that so star trek suddenly throws all that into the mix then you get to you know star trek 4 which we talked about where a large part of star trek 4 is this idea of taking your 1960s characters and dropping them into 1980s san francisco and therefore kind of having this not very heavy-handed but very explicit exploration of what it means to be a 60s icon in yuppie america what it means to have been, you know, a cultural ambassador of Kennedy or Johnson era American values in a world defined by Ronald Reagan. Sure. And obviously, look, we, we talked about Star Trek Six as well, where that goes on. And that's about like, well, wh- what does it mean for these icons of the 1960s when the Cold War is over? Like when, when the, the defining ideological framework of the classic 1960s show is wrapped up, what does it mean to be James Tiberius Kirk or Spock or McCoy? And grappling with that. And I mean, obviously, 
at the same time that this comes out in 1989, we already mentioned you have Star Trek The Next Generation, which is radically redefining what it means to be Star Trek in 1989. So you have this idea of the franchise kind of radically changing and growing. And what's what's really interesting about Star Trek V is that it feels like a rejection of that, of all of that stuff that we mentioned. You, you mentioned continuity there, like the fact that David never really comes up, even though he ends up being a key plot point in Star Trek VI. Yes. But you also have like a moment here where, you know, Kirk says, I lost a brother once. And you're like, oh, wow, are they going to reference the events of Operation Annihilate, the first season finale of the original Star Trek show, in which James Kirk's brother, Samuel Kirk, who is played by William Shatner with a mustache, has been brutally murdered by the aliens of the week in order to generate some tension, but that is never broached again over the entire run of the show. You're like, is Star Trek V finally going to go there? Because thematically, it makes sense. This is a story about brothers and about forgotten brothers and about consequences and what happens when you confront the idea of this brother who you've never mentioned to anybody else, who's never been a part of your life before, and what that brings in terms of emotion to the people around you. But then the movie goes but I got him back. And you're like, oh, okay. So we're, we're literally just talking about Spock. Our memory goes back as far as the hugely successful films that were released a couple of years ago, not the actual franchise from which we're drawing. And there are other instances of it as well, where like you can tell Shatner, we, we've talked about Shatner before and we talked about him on all the previous episodes. And one of the big things about Shatner is that there's a sense of fragility and vulnerability to Shatner as a leading man, as a performer, and, you know, it, it leads him to make choices that alienate the people around him, but he does become this sort of tragic figure if you're at all sympathetic to him. And there's a sense watching Star Trek V that, like, Shatner really wishes that it were, like, 1969 again. Shatner wishes that he could roll back the clock, because we talked about when we talked about Star Trek Three, Star Trek Four. One of the big innovations with the film franchise, particularly with, like, Leonard Nimoy stepping away at the end of Star Trek II, these become much more ensemble pieces. These give a bit of space to the characters who never really got anything but a couple of lines in the TV show, you know? So you have in, in Star Trek Three when they're stealing the Enterprise, everybody gets a moment. So Sulu gets to flip a security guard. Uh, Uhura gets to lock Mr. Adventure in a closet. Scotty gets to sabotage the Excelsior. You know, McCoy gets to have Spock in his brain. You go to Star Trek Four, and everybody gets like a particular moment or a subplot there. Sulu gets to fly a helicopter. Chekhov gets to look for nuclear vessels. Um, you have like Scotty talks, you know, gets to invent really thick aquarium glass you know everybody gets a moment in that film everybody's given a sense of focus and a bit of attention and like a bit of love in a way that wasn't always true on the tv show and like even outside of like the the movie franchise you look at say star trek the next generation which is on tv at the moment currently in the middle of producing its second season those first two seasons of the next generation are rough yeah but what's just around the corner is the arrival of michael pillar into the writer's room, where he arrives at the start of the third season, he's hired as a writer on staff, then the writer who is supposed to be writing, uh, Michael Wagner, quits, and then Pillar is basically taking the lunch and said, you are running Star Trek The Next Generation, and he's like, okay, and Pillar comes up with this approach to writing Star Trek that comes to define Star Trek between the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation and at least the second season, if not the fourth season of Star Trek Enterprise. We're talking a solid 15 years of Star Trek continuity, uh, more than that if you count in terms of seasons. But what Pillar says is that every episode of Star Trek should focus on a character, 
We should be taking advantage of our ensembles and we should be able to have an episode about Worf. We should be able to have an episode about Geordi. We should be able to have an episode about Troy, about Crusher, that like these characters don't exist simply to serve Picard or Riker or Data, the three nominal leads of the show. They can all have their own episodes, their own arc, and they all deserve focus. And that is what the future of television is. This is what the future of the Star Trek franchise is, even as we remain episodic, even before we push into serialization. And watching, like, Star Trek V, which occurs on the cusp of Pillar's revolution, but in the wake of the ensemble approach of 3 and 4, it really does feel like Shatner's going, no, everybody get back in your box, know your places, I am the lead of this show. I am the lead of this franchise. Star Trek is about Kirk. I'm not just the captain of the ship. I'm the director of the movie. I'm the guy responsible for the story. I get to set the agenda. And Star Trek is and always will be about the captain first and foremost. And sure, Leonard, he might get to play a part as well because people seem to like Spock as a character and because he has some leverage in terms of negotiations. And yet, DeForest Kelly, everybody gets along with DeForest Kelly. He can be part of the trio as well. As long as he doesn't get too demanding, as long as he doesn't expect too much focus, we'll give him a little bit of attention. He can hang out with Kirk and Spock and he can get a dramatic beat. It, yeah, do, it does it, feel... Yeah. It's peculiar, I guess, in some ways, that, that Bones is always like the kind of like the third um, yeah. wheel there. But despite not really getting... Like, again, we'll talk about when we get into this war zone. The movie does some stuff with Bones, but it's very careful to be clear that Bones is nowhere near as important as Spock or Kirk. Sure. There's, like, there's Kirk and Spock, there's Bones, and then there's everybody else to Shatner, which is really interesting. And again, like, it... Part of me is, like, is this movie in its own weird I way... Like Scotty's up there, though. I... I... Yeah, we'll talk about maybe in the spoiler zone how this movie uses Scotty, where it's like he does get a bit of screen time, but what what he actually does is quite minor and insignificant. Yeah. Um, where it's But I think and this is maybe the crazy idea, is this the Star Trek movie that is closest to the tone and spirit of the original show? The show as it actually existed between 1966 and 1969. Yeah. Yeah. In the sense that the, the, the um, and I, I think, I think Insurrection is similar in that respect. With Next Generation. Yeah. 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 That it's just an episode of the show. Yeah. That got kind of blown up. And I mean, you can point to what specific episodes of the show this is. This is very much like Journey to Eden. Or Way to Eden. Apologies. The famous Charles Napier uh, Space Hippie episode. Or it's like The Apple or... What's the other one? Um, Return of the Archons, where it's like, oh, God, eh? What if, what if God, question mark? Um, like, it does feel like in 1989, Shatner's like, no, 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 still, still 1969. Isn't that any, everything that happened in the 20 years since then doesn't matter in any way, shape or form. This is what I, William Shatner, who was at my peak during the original Star Trek, have decided that Star Trek is. And I find that interesting. Like, it's, it's the version that feels most weirdly out of step with like its moment where it's just like, no, Star Trek is what William Shatner experienced or remembered Star Trek being 20 years before this movie came out, which is interesting, I think. Um, so I guess, yeah, I, I, I would recommend it if you are watching all of the Star Trek movies, which is a qualified recommendation, perhaps. With that in mind, we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Gently down the stream 
Merrily, 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 merrily. Life is but a dream. Merrily, 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 merrily. down the stream. Spoiler zone. So, Andrew, what is Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, about for you? Um, it is about... So we have this idea in in movies these days of, uh, like, found family. Um, Fast X being the great modern example to get yeah. there in there quickly, yes. But it's the, the uh, where 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 your friends become uh, your your family, but in this case, it's uh, your friends and love that you have for them is replacing uh, a deity. Yeah, and and to be clear, also a biological family connection as well. In the case of Spock and Cyborg, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is a movie about finding God. And again, we've, we've talked about it before. Like a couple of months ago, we talked about Ghosts, which is a movie released the year after this. But I think we talked we talked about like The Last Crusade, how like there's, there is this thing at the end of the 80s and start of the 90s where America kind of seems to have this spiritual crisis through films. I think Karen James in the New York Times made the point that, yeah, you look at the blockbusters of 1989, you look at, say, The Final Frontier, you look at movies like, say, The Last Crusade, you look at movies like, say, Field of Dreams, and there is this sense of, is God present and active in American life? Does God still exist? Does God still define us? And again, standard 250 nonsense stuff where you can say, like, is that because we got out in the Cold War and we don't need ideologies anymore? <laughs> is this because we live in a post-ideological world? But it's like, I, I find it interesting that ignoring the ego trip of Shatner finally giving Kirk an enemy worthy of Kirk, it's kind of fascinating that the Enterprise goes and looks for God. Like, on paper, that is a fascinating concept for a movie. I think the results don't live up to it, but it's it's just a big swing. Yeah. Um, very famously, obviously, Shatner faced a number of, of kind of like oppositions to that. I think Roddenberry took exception to it. Uh, it's been suggested that Roddenberry took exception to it because his original pitch for the motion picture was going to be The Crew Finds God. And that was vetoed by Paramount in 1979 as being too controversial. So according to Shatner, who is obviously an unbiased source and all things Shatner, Roddenberry was just jealous that Shatner got to do the thing that he he didn't get to do. But Bennett, who produced the movie and who came up with the story or helped come up with the story, was like his big problem with the movie was there's no way to pay off that idea. You cannot have you open the his his anecdote is you open the TV guide and you see this week the Enterprise crew look for God. And by the way, it's very telling that he goes, this is just an episode of Star Trek, as we already discussed. Sure. But it's like you read that log line and you're like, well, I already know how this ends. They can't find him. Like, it's impossible for a piece of pulp media to have the crew find God, and therefore, as an audience, you can't invest in it, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Do you think if we if we made, like, a piece of media where we... <laughs> where, like, next week's podcast... Um, the 250 Finds God. Yeah. So, are you a guest? <laughs> I think we could book him. I think, yeah, I think he's available. Yeah. I mean, if there is a God, I think... He's certainly willing to appear in a podcast about movies. Yeah, it was specifically ours. Yeah, that that's fair. 
<laughs> I like that there are several barriers to that premise. But yes, I like that the third one is it will be our podcast yeah. about movies. And we would beat Rogan that week. Uh, <laughs> we, we did beat Ben Shapiro in, was it Uruguay? <laughs> Uruguay. Uh, which we're very proud of. Uh, more popular than Ben Shapiro in Uruguay. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I kind of... It's didn't quite pip... Was it Jordan Peterson? No. <laughs> <laughs> That that's 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 a twenty twenty five goal. That's the space we're in. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're competing against. Yeah. But like I I don't know, I do I find I like Shatner, like just the the idea of using Star Trek to deal with existential questions. Because again, I think we've kind of talked about it with The Wrath of Khan, which is a movie that I like a lot, I think you're more on the fence about, and you made the point that Star Trek movies aren't really Star Trek. And that's one of the big debates that Star Trek fandom has. I think even, like, writer Ronald D. Moore has made the point Star Trek movies are a completely separate thing from the TV show because they have to be crowd-pleasing. They have to be blockbusters. They have to be big. They have to be big, epic, kind of sweeping space yeah. adventures. And I think the idea... They're, they're the, the kind of rare two-part... <laughs> episodes. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, even even then, There's though, not that much difference between like in in fact, a lot of the two part episodes are more consequential. Yes, than, than the movies. Than the movies, yeah. Uh, but even like the the two part episodes on like the Next Generation tended to be quite talky. Like I'm thinking of say Chain of Command, which is the one where Picard is tortured by the Cardassians. Yeah, that's much more of a chamber piece, much more dramatic, much more character driven than a lot of the movies, with the possible exception of Generations. To give Generations credit there. But I do. Like, it, it's kind of interesting that it's, like, on paper, The Final Frontier is such a big swing. And it's arguably closer to what Star Trek is on the TV show than most of the movies. But it just, it doesn't work. Well, that's, like, a lot of the TV shows. Fair. That, that, <laughs> a lot of the original the, series. What's that, what's that line from shows, Futurama? It's, like, great premise, but... Sorry. <laughs> so, so, execution. <laughs> Was it in the Futurama, the bit where Fry's like, you know the show I'm talking about, 79 episodes, about 20 good ones. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, it is also a fascinating window into Shatner's mind. Where, like, the central plot of this movie is that everybody will betray Shatner. I mean, Kirk. And uh, <laughs> the entire crew of this Enterprise that Shatner, I mean Kirk is leading, will eventually turn against him. And Shatner, and I mean Kirk here, will have to stand alone against God and guide this project to fruition. It's such a fascinating study of kind of of ego in a Yeah, I mean but it's funny because there there um there isn't really much of an antagonist in this movie. You know, to the extent that they go along, like when they when they're back in charge. Yeah, they just they they agree they might as well follow like, this idea to completion. Yeah. So you're gonna go back now? <laughs> you're gonna like, turn around? No, gonna no, take? We're not. Gonna, am but I gonna I'm, face any consequences for hijacking this ship? It's like no, no, no. It's grand. We're here now, right? Yeah, exactly. And the um, it's a movie with so little um stakes in it. Uh, like it re, 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 realistically yeah you know the the it, it's it's like it's 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 a bit like um it's a bit like four in that way i guess yeah 
Yeah, although again, I think four had the luxury of being an ensemble piece, so it had like again, it it, it kind of it could cut around. No, but in terms of like global stakes, yeah. But even four has the theoretically immediate threat of the probe. Now, the probe doesn't appear for like an hour and forty minutes in the middle of the film, but at least at the outset, it establishes the probe is there. Yeah, and therefore there is a reason why this is happening. Like it does give you temporarily stakes changes the weather. <laughs> But it kind of, you, you know, you're not certain whether that's going to be destroy like the planet. cataclysmic. Yeah. yeah. Like maybe people just have umbrellas from here on out. Maybe it's like Hong Kong. We you're just going to stay catwalks. here and keep ringing the doorbell <laughs> until someone answers. And then eventually they'll leave a note and come back. <laughs> <laughs> I do love, by the way, that like the probe just pops over, like says, how you doing? The whales go fine, actually. And the probe's like, OK, well, my job here is done. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. um, but like. Okay, here is... We mentioned this last night. We did not watch this with the commentary. Pregnant. It's <laughs> <laughs> the reply. Yeah. Our thing's pregnant. Um, oh, gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, we mentioned last night when we were watching it that there is the Shatner commentary, which I've listened to before, and is like something to behold. Because it is very much a William Shatner has a list of grievances and he's going to work through them for an hour and 45 minutes. That's what a memoir is for. (laughs) (laughs) And and Shatner has several memoirs, you'll be thrilled to hear. But like, there is the line where he he recalls the the other actors accusing him of like nicking their lines. And his his dismissive response is, there was nothing to nick. Um, But there's also... When he's asked to explain why the movie looks so shoddy, which is a line that I... And I absolutely love that it's like... This is how Shatner chooses to respond to why does the movie look as bad as it does. So, the budget on a Star Trek film is overloaded on salary. A disproportionate amount of money is spent on talent as against production. And you also have the problem of people's own estimations of their worth, which increases as the years go by. It's not like you're in a first-time movie and say, hey, here's a small part, you got five lines and you're in three scenes. It's, you've got five lines and three scenes, but you've been on board this thing for years. And so your sense of self-worth has improved much more. Like, it's it's fantastic. This movie would be so much better if I didn't have to pay George Takei but, and like, Walter Koenig. All the stuff he said about his co-stars, up until the point where he was like, you have five lines, <laughs> it equally applies to himself. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 The difference is, of course, Shatner has more than five lines and is the director of the project. Exactly. Yeah. But he's also, like, got this, like, you know, inflated... Um, <laughs> Opinion uh, of himself. Yeah, and salary. Yeah. Well, yeah, that is the thing. That is obviously why Paramount... We talked about this. We talked about, like, the the voyage home. Like, the, the salary of the cast had become prohibitive. So Paramount was like, let's push this onto television. And let's hire a young new cast to carry the franchise for another decade or so. And let's set this older cast out to pasture. And I think, like, it's interesting watching this movie, right? Shatner, who is directing this movie, he only uses a couple of sets from The Next Generation. Now, let, let's... Yeah, let's ex- notice them. Yeah, like, he uses the sick bay, for example. He uses the corridors. Yeah. But what's interesting... It doesn't match, like, the rest of the corridors. We see corridors that aren't next-generation yeah. corridors. And, and, then, and, and then all of a sudden, we see, like, very the next-generation corridors. Yeah. And, and, like, I think... Again, I don't have any confirmation for that, but my speculation there is he ran out of budget and was like, feck, we have to use the next generation sets. Like this scene with uh, Ohura and Scotty in sickbay, 
that is very obviously the sick bay from the next generation because it's the only scene in which sick bay appears in the movie but shatner shoots that in intense close-up because he doesn't want you to recognize the set and it's really strange because it does feel like there's a bit of a chip on the shoulder of like no this is my own star trek like it is absurd to me that he spent as much as he did building sets for the shuttle bay and building sets for the shuttle when he could have just used or redressed sets from the next generation and spent that money elsewhere. Like, it's an insane creative choice that I think maybe only really makes sense if you're like, no, it's mine. I want I want this set to be my own set, you know? I want this set to look different from the one on television, even though I think they kind of look crappier. I think the next generation sets look better than the sets in this movie, which is frustrating. Um, even though this is supposed to be the big blockbuster movie, yeah, I I I do like the um, kind of stop motion uh, Klingon bird of prey. It's very much like the like Edge two hundred nine. Edge two hundred nine. My mind went to, Robocop reference. My mind went to exactly the same place. I love that the Klingon bird of prey's it's weapon. Like you have a minute to comply. <laughs> <laughs> but it it cocks. I love that it's stop yeah. motion cocks the the disruptor cannon on the Klingon ship. Yeah, do, let's talk about the Klingons. Um, which is weird. Again, this is the thing where this feels like nothing has happened in the Star Trek universe for like the past five movies. And Shatner's like, well, it's a Star Trek movie. You gotta have the Klingons in it. So you have, like, Kla, who is played by, is it Todd Briant, who's a stunt performer? And it kind of shows. Like, that sequence where he arrives on the bridge and he's walking. And you can tell that, like, either Briant or Shatner has decided that he can't just walk onto the bridge. He has to swagger. Like, walk with your shoulders, which is kind of interesting to see and then you also have it, it, it's a comic um role because they're 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 destroying like a, a 20th century art probe is uh, it difficult to hit <laughs> and again shatner's ego where like the thing that excites Kla isn't it's the enterprise or a federation vessel it's like kirk i'll be famous i will destroy kirk and that will make me famous because Kirk is the most important person in the Star Trek galaxy. Mm. But yeah, it, it's just the Klingon stuff here is strange because it does feel like at some point somebody read the plot and was like, there, there, there's no antagonist here. As you said, the villain of the piece who's Cyborg, who I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment, he, he he's not really a villain. No. And God, quote unquote, doesn't show up until the third act. So... We need some stakes. It doesn't really brainwash people, like in 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 the sense that he appears to connect people with their emotions. Or does he? I, I mean, well, Shatner Shatner's talked about how he was inspired by Televangelist. How the character of, it was originally Czar, and then it was reworked to be Cyborg. But basically, the character was based on the televangelists that were becoming increasingly common during the 80s. And it it does seem like he allows people to work through their traumas. I was watching it and I was thinking, actually, this is but very to take the pain away. Yeah. And you can't take my pain away. Yeah. Um, but like it, the thing that really struck with me, and maybe maybe this is unfair, but it's just in the 1980s in Hollywood, is like Scientology, 
where the thing with Scientology is you go in and you confess. And I guess it's it's common in most religions. It's common with most organized religions. You go in and you confess your sins and you supposedly feel lightened through the act of confession. Yeah. And therefore, like, invested and indebted to the institution. Uh, and that's kind of what I thought about there, where it's like he allowed these people to confront their sins or their crimes or their whatever it was their that they pain. felt their pain. Yeah. And through that, they felt indebted to him. By the way, I love that you can tell how little Shatner cares about any of the cast, that like it happens to Sulu off screen. It happens to Chekhov off screen. It happens to Uhura off screen. You never find out what their pain is. You never even see Cybok bothering to do it. It just happens off screen. And then with Scotty, it's like, hey, Scotty, you want to get laid? It's like, yeah, I feel like I want to get laid. Um, it's such a fascinating film where Shatner's like, yeah, no, everybody will turn against me. Everybody will turn against me. Even Doohan. Yeah, I feel like um, Doohan's expecting, like, you know, on uh, <laughs> what is it, the Deathly Hallows Part Two, um, <laughs> at the end of six, where it's like, so we're all going to score each other, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm my myself, myself and Ahura, um, Chekhov and Sulu and Chekhov. <laughs> it has to be Kirk, Sulu and Chekhov. Yeah, yeah. Kirk, by process of elimination, yeah, Kirk, <laughs> Kirk and Spock not in front of the Klingons, <laughs> but. I mean, Bones is definitely on a chair. <laughs> watching. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> this but, is great. <laughs> so that's why they call him Bones. Uh, but anyway. The, <laughs> like, it is it, like watching it. It's odd because like, w- watching it last night and the first scene that like Scotty has on the Enterprise where Uhura shows up and it's like, we were meant to vacation together here. I brought us dinner. I'm like, wait, our. Are Ahura and Scotty boning? Is that is that what what's happening here? Is there like, because it it does feel like it's more than just a platonic thing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. They 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 have feelings for one another that that as far as I can recall, don't ever get paid off. Never get set up or paid off. It's never maybe, mentioned before. Or maybe since. they're just like, why would we take that away from fanfic like, <laughs> writers? But presumably, fanfic people do that because they don't get it in the show, or yeah. they, but they want the well, show or the movies to 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 give that to them, right? Yeah, I mean, the Ahura pairing in fanfic was always Spock and Ahura, and obviously that becomes a big deal well, in Spock the Abrams and anyone movies. else. That is fair. It was, it was Spock and Kirk, Spock and Bones, Spock and Ahura. Um, but yes, it was like the hetero pairing was always Spock and Ahura. Um, and obviously that becomes Which, part, yeah. part of the, the Abrams movies. I mean, even going back to the show, like on the show, Uhura and Spock would, you wouldn't call it flirting, but they'd like play music and sing together and stuff like that. And that is more interaction than Uhura had with any other member of the cast for reasons that are, you know, not necessarily conscious, but reflect the show's troubled handling of Uhura as a character. But she would get to talk to Spock. She would get to spend time with Nimoy. And they'd relax together and they'd yeah. be seen together. I think, like, yeah, like overall, I think the show obviously gets a lot of credit for the, the like, their treatment of, of um, you know. Well, for their diverse diversity. future, for including yeah, yeah. people like, I mean, you've mentioned Chekhov as a Russian, but also Sulu, uh, also like a horror and stuff like that. Um, 
but yeah, I think I think you know it was a show from the nineteen sixties. Blind spots are inevitable. Sure. Um, and like I mean, again, it's also a show from the sixties, and you can watch this movie and get that sense. Nobody cared about anybody but Kirk and Spock, and maybe occasionally Bones. Like the thing with Bones is that every once in a while the writers would write a storyline about Bones, and like Shatner would be like, no, <laughs> just no. Like the, the, he he has like there's an entire continuity for Bones that exists outside of the show because it was all written in and then written out. So things like him having an estranged daughter, for example, being a divorcee, all that sort of stuff, which I think gets referenced again in the Abrams movies. But it was all like part of the show in the 1960s, but was written out of episodes like For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, um, which is a shame. Um, and again, you can kind of see that here because this is the this is the biggest amount of backstory you ever get for Bones, which is the stuff with his father, which has nothing to do with the plot. Yeah. Um, where Cybok shows up and he takes him back to his father's kind of dying breaths and the point where like McCoy euthanized him. And it feels like that should be a big deal, but it just isn't. Where he's like, Jim, listen to this guy. And Kirk's like, I'm not going to listen to this guy. And McCoy's like, you're right, we shouldn't listen to this guy. It's such a strange beat. And again, it, it, it has that feeling of... Shatner has talked about this. The original draft of Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, was going to end up with Kirk entirely alone. That's why you have the setup of... I always knew I'd die alone. You were never alone. Like, the plot that he wrote required McCoy and Spock to turn against him as well. They would betray Kirk as well in the original draft of the screenplay. And Kirk would stand alone against God and win, crucially. But apparently Nimoy and... Handily. Like the, um... <laughs> the Klingon bird of prey literally shoots God in the face. Um... Yeah, before that, like, the... That that torpedo, what it's it's got to be like a like a grenade, right? Or like a rocket propelled grenade, but it's shot from a spaceship, <laughs> so you expect it to kind of evaporate do everything in more. the vicinity. How many ki- how many like megatons are are those um, torpedoes meant uh, to be? Yeah, because they'll hit like a a Klingon bird of prey with its um like shields down and uh it'll just explode like it's a fireworks factory yeah but they presumably that's like the uh, some of the stuff on the bird of prey exploding <laughs> all the, the klingons storing all their gunpowder for their like <laughs> cocking disruptor cannons i mean there is the moment even here where the klingons go to fire a disruptor blast at the Enterprise, which presumably has its shields up. And there's the moment where the Enterprise just warps away, dodging that disruptor blast. And you're like, That's right. there's it's... no no tension. I've seen the ship get hit countless times. It's like, even if it got hit, it could still warp away. Yeah, they, it, it's it's interesting as well that the, that the disruptor blast moves... Um, Slowly, what do I? Speed of light. Yeah, slower than the speed of light. <laughs> Which, yeah, I guess you wanted to do <laughs> for reasons. Um, I mean, again, maybe talk a little bit about the climax here, where they go down to the planet. Like the original climax of this movie was going to be much more involved. I'm not going to say it was better. In fact, like this is the thing where, like, I believe it's Winters or it's Bennett is like no amount of money would ever have fixed this movie. The original premise was going to be 
Kirk would beam down, he would confront God, he would fight angels and demons. There would be monsters made out of rock, which is a premise that was recycled for Galaxy Quest, I think, about a decade later. But the idea was that Kirk would fight rock monsters, which again, feels like something from the classic TV show. It feels like something from the 1960s. Kirk goes out in the desert and he fights a big lumbering dude in a suit. Um, and apparently the tests there, for that... There aren't good uh, fights in this movie at all. No. 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 There's a thing in Paradise City. Where, where... the girls are hot and the <laughs> boys are pretty. <laughs> <laughs> and the girls are three titties. <laughs> <laughs> Which we both noticed. I had to appreciate that we both noticed. That was a, a note we both made. Again, the the cat. What was it? you? You said it was. It's very Star Wars. I think was your description. Yeah, actually. yeah. It, it's very like Mazaisley. Uh, yeah, it, it's very. But I think it's even more than that. It's very lurid paperbacky. It's like those old sci-fi magazines from the fifties, where you'd have like a cover of like a sexy cat lady with three boobs. Um, and it's like Shatner's like it's in the movie there's a bit where they play pool and it's in water uh, and I'm like good good world building what if pool was an actual pool I appreciate the visual pun Shatner but yeah like the Nimbus I suppose do you want to talk about the Nimbus yeah I forgot the way the movie starts I just thought it started in Yosemite Um, but it doesn't no it starts on Nimbus 3 the planet of galactic peace. The planet of galactic peace, where it it feels like they tore love and thunder. Um, Christian Bale's character is there, um, but it, it, this is long after um, lo, 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 losing his daughter. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, like the Nimbus Three stuff. It's very eighties. Like it is. Like obviously, the Three Breasts is. Total Recall actually comes out. Fair, oh, fair, fair shout. Total Recall comes out the following year. Oh. So obviously Shatner was a, tra- a trailblazer. I think so. Yeah, I mean, look, he was the first man who's like, what if, and hear me out here, we all like two breasts, but what if three, and Paramount were like, $33 million budget. Yeah. yeah. It's $11 million for each breast is what we're giving you. And Shatner's like, I wish I had three hands <laughs> so I could give them three thumbs down. <laughs> Um, but like kills her (laughs) (laughs) yes yes he does (laughs) Um, she deserved that (laughs) she did like it's weird that the the only staff member who cares enough to fight for the establishment is the exotic dancer yeah who who routinely gets her tail pulled by the bartender as well it doesn't seem like it's a healthy working environment It's a living. <laughs> the chain smoking cigarettes, because of course he is. <laughs> um, I mean, I, but did no smoking in space dock. <laughs> per those signs. <laughs> yeah. But very inappropriate it, it, smoking. Uh, <laughs> but I, I like Nimbus Three is one of those things that it's such a weird concept where it's like I kind of wish we got more. It's it's a fascinating idea, which is this. The Klingons, the Romulans, the Federation set up a colony in the neutral zone that failed so spectacularly. Um, but it's just a weird plot we, device, dev- device, device for like three breasted cats. We, we cat grifted women. all these losers <laughs> to, to, to come here. <laughs> Idiots did. 
Yeah, like John St. Elwood, played by David Warner, who obviously plays Gorkin in Star Trek Six. Yes. Um, he's great. I love David Warner so much. He's great. But, but he's like, is it St. John, St. John Talbot, where he's like, um, yeah. <laughs> from the outset, this he's, maybe wasn't the best idea. Yeah, he, 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 he says some, someone is coming and I'm not fit to, to, um, tie their sandals. Nice. Also do like that you can tell that the character gets dipped in water (laughs) (laughs) and dies. (laughs) I mean, it is. um, Yeah, I mean, not not to get into the this is directed by a man working through a midlife crisisness of the movie. I do like that in the background of the like in the background of the film, there is this same Korg or sorry. Oh, the the Klingon, yes, the Klingon General Cord. Yeah, General Cord is very played much by Charles kind Cooper. Of, yeah, <laughs> it's sort of like oh, he used um, we read about him in um, in Starfleet Academy, and now he's given this like you know um, <laughs> terrible assignment, <laughs> exactly dead end job. What's Kirk's line is? I hope when they put me out of pasture, it's to a better field. Yeah, like that. But I mean, like even ignoring Cord and like. Very t- I feel like that character of Cord is for some middle-aged person in the in the audience. Their identification. Who's watched the original series and kind of, you know, is like, oh, I get to be important as well. Well, cause that, the climax of the movie, which is absolutely ridiculous, where, where like, Cord, who has been possibly the least developed character in the movie today, I think he has a total of two lines before he, before like he it's a fixed, burp <laughs> yeah one of them is a burp he has two lines before like spoken about <laughs> yeah. but like spock goes like, oh cord yeah. he's a big deal <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna want to remember him when the third act comes around um but like like at the climax of the movie hinges on spock turning to cord who is a drunk who has had two lines one of which was a burp to this point in the movie and going general this entire movie depends on your next action. And then you get a cut to an exterior shot, an ADR'd line of Nimoy saying, Commander Kla, there is someone who would like to speak to you. And then the plot resolves itself, which is remarkable. Yeah. Like, the entire... Apologize. <laughs> that... Okay. <laughs> that was added in post-production, and you can tell because Shatner is a little bit heavier than he is over the rest of the movie. <laughs> in fact, you could tell that, like, the cup between Kirk finding Smock in the command chair and Kla apologizing to Kirk. Yeah. Because this... There's a continuity because he's got, like, barbecue sauce uh, around his <laughs> mouth, and at no point do you see him eating barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> But, like, I like that that was the studio's note. It's like, good movie. Good movie, Bill. We got one thing. Kla has to apologize to Kirk. <laughs> Apparently the big thing was that they were worried. Shatner, naturally, Shatner had a multi-movie arc planned. Where he was like, Star Trek V is going to set up the next ten Star Treks. He wanted the Kla subplot to set up the idea that the Klingons had put a bounty on the head of James T. Kirk. And obviously the next couple of movies will be about Kirk being so awesome that he single-handedly defeats the Klingons. And that line with Kla was apparently forced by the studio because they didn't want anybody to think that this was ever going to pay off in any way, shape, or form. It's like, I did not act with the authority of my government. Just so we're clear. No continuity. By the way, for, for Klingons to be actually menacing, this is in the future. So you could have it where the Klingons were like uh, had dominion over like the federation 
at some point. <laughs> but that that's never I, I I guess established. They were they were always losing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, the Klingons they're like like their whole thing is is war, but they don't appear to be good especially at good at it. No. I think and again, this is a discussion for another time, but it's I think that's one of the things I really like about the next generation Deep Space Nine is that they're they're kind of about how crap the Empire is. Like on Deep Space Nine, they make it explicit the Empire's in been in decline for two hundred years, which means that every time you have seen them in Star Trek from the original series to the next generation, they've been on the verge of collapse. And I think it kind of works in the next generation and Deep Space Nine because like the Klingons are meant to be communists they're meant to be right we talk about with star trek 6 but the idea is that after the fall of the berlin wall like russia in the 90s is seen as this den of criminality and incompetence and violence and lack of focus and chaos and i think that like on the next generation and deep space 9 you have this portrayal of the klingon empire as something that is inherently corrupt and decrepit and in decline that I think fits, but I, I, that's not what the narrative of these movies is. Like, these movies are meant to be... There's the moment where, like, the camera pushes in past as it's Scotty onto the background image, and it's like, Klingon, bird of prey detected, recommended, red alert. It's like, oh no, the Klingons. Well, they're always menacing in the show as well. Yes, they, they, that they, 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 There will be and... always be the, the, like, Klingon bird of prey, the cloaking off the port bow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is 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 uh, like you know it's a rare kind of a um, that it that it happens, but when it does, everyone's like, all like, "Oh, you have to be like, oh God, <laughs> today I might die." <laughs> um, but nobody ever does. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and and we talked about Cord there, just about Talbot and about the Romulan ambassador. Um, like if you watch the film, there's this weird thing that plays out in the background where like there's this. Again, very middle-aged fantasy love story where not not conventionally handsome man, David Warner, like, seduces and hooks up with this beautiful young Romulan ambassador who's arrived on this planet naive and hopeless, where like they're... handsome enough, is he? Fair, fair, I suppose. He's got a great voice. He does. And yeah. presence. I, I love David Warner. I didn't mean to disparage him in any way, shape, or form. But also, like, Cynthia Gow is, like, a supermodel, to be clear. Sure. And there's and also like half his age, but there's the moment where they're like during the Klingon attack, they're cradling each other on the bridge. When the Klingons kind of hit them, he's lying on the ground and she is cradling him in her arms. And then at the end of the movie, in is it the observation lounge? They're like kind of hugging and kissing each other, and it's like, wow, that was a choice, Shatner. That was a that was a very strong character choice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that she um I guess assessed her options <laughs> <laughs> on on Paradise. Uh, yeah. On the one hand, uh, Saint John Talbot, on the other hand, General Cord. Yeah. Um, there is also the moment where like Chekhov and Sulu follow Vixus into the lounge and are like, She's got a great ass and you've got your head all the way up it. And I'm like, Wow, that is that is a choice for this movie. Oh, yes, yeah, the Klingon kind of lieutenant. Yeah. Yes, um, who is played, by the way, of the wife of the screenwriter for Hacksaw Ridge. To bring us back to that 250 connection. Hmm. Uh, her name is, she's Spice Williams Crosby. Again, another stunt person. Cast, I think, largely for her screen presence. And she does have screen presence. She's very noticeable. 
but yeah, it, it's a again, it's it's a weird thing where it's like middle aged men kind of lusting after women, where it's like, hey, we're just gonna have our two leads follow her around the room, remarking on how nice her uh, is it her muscles are. Is that the line that Chekhov uses? She has very well defined muscles. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, like I, 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 yeah. I mean, it says about Chekhov that that's what he <laughs> likes, uh, which is not things that you needed to know about Chekhov. <laughs> that weird little Russian. Yeah. <laughs> that Anton Yelchin's description, where he's like, "When I was offered the part of Chekhov, I was like, why would I want to play Chekhov?'" But then I watched the movies, and I was like, "This is a character." <laughs> 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 His little Lord Fauntleroy costume from Star Trek Three. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know about the inner life of Chekhov. All right, in terms of uh, Star Trek Five, this feels like it may be a brief one, which is great. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at you? Um, there's like Cybok's line is kind of what what you fear is the unknown. Maybe <laughs> I don't know how significant that is for kind of Kirk as a character or for Shatner. But given the ostensible point of like Star Trek is to boldly go where no man has gone before, as we are reminded via a plaque on the steering (laughs) wheel in the observation that, which is another one of those sets where I'm like, how much money did you spend building that set? And did you need to spend it on that set? Well, that does look crappy if (laughs) if we're being fair. Well, it's a triangular room, but it's full of objects. It's full of props. And it has, obviously, like, it has some trick photography. There's, that, a, there's a printer on, <laughs> yeah, on, on the bridge. On the bridge. <laughs> on the, it's like, get that printer out of here. <laughs> yeah. On my day, we didn't allow printers on the bridge of the Enterprise. Um, but yeah, there is, like, those flashback sequences. I don't think this is a well-directed movie. I think this is a very poorly directed movie. But I think those sequences in the observation lounge with the flashbacks are actually quite well done, where the camera will pan over and it will reveal the cityscape and McCoy's father, or it'll pan over and it'll reveal the birth of Spock. I do love, by the way, that like Shatner's big takeaway on Spock, like the secret pain that Spock feels is that his father looked at him when he was born and said, human. Um, Like, that's it. That's the one guilt or weight or shame that Spock has. And yeah, and that Spock was like... I don't care about that. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not I'm I'm not that kind of, you know, um cast aside uh young boy that I was then. Yeah. You don't know me. Yeah, I mean the the revelation again, the revelation of Cyborg is very much a an episode of Star Trek from the nineteen sixties where we gotta produce twenty nine of these a season. And it's like, have we done Spock's secret half brother yet? It's like, nope, okay, it's in the show. It's a weird choice. And again, it feels like a choice that's like Shatner was like, I have to give Spock something. Yeah. And I have to give Spock something that won't give Nimoy anything. So yeah, it's just say, yeah, established that Sarek was more of a swordsman <laughs> than, than we realized. <laughs> um, yeah. I, yeah. It, it's a weird thing. Again, one of those things that has been memory hold. Although you will be, Andrew, you will be thrilled to hear Cybok has come back in the uh, modern wave of Star Trek shows because there is no continuity that cannot be mined. There is a big shocking reveal at the end of a first season episode of Strange New Worlds that's like, oh my God, it's Cybok. And it's like, is he recast? Uh, well, you only see the back of his head. 
Ah, so they're presumably waiting to cast some sort of celebrity when they bring him back properly. But yeah, it would be great if it was just Lawrence Luckinbull at the age of 80 wearing the makeup. Yeah. Um, Luckinbull, who is famous for his one-man shows about American presidents, which is a great thing to be famous for. Um, also, he's apparently the uncle of Lana and Lee Wachowski. Uh, he, uh, a one-man show about all of the presidents or different one-man shows about different presidents? Different one-man shows. It would be great if he was just like, I'm going to take you through. It's going to take like 17 hours, but we're going to get there at the end. Yeah. Um, but well, yeah. No- you, you, you see, like, I feel like, I mean, listeners can correct me, but there's like Millard Fillmore and um, like Polk and Tyler and... Uh, so like if we get engagement will there be engagement for kind of like actually um, uh, Polk is is more important than you think yeah well no it is it's it's one man shows based on the lives of Theodore Roosevelt and LBJ oh so yeah yeah kind of big ones like I I think LBJ is now recognized as kind of like an important um, uh, uh, president Rather than an accidental president. Yeah, yeah. As a consequential, like, American figure. I mean, again, you know the the famous story here. They wanted uh, Sean Connery. That's why the Vulcan heaven is called Shakari. Sean Connery. Ah. Yeah. Obviously, the official line is that Connery was busy making Last Crusade. Which is a really nice story to tell. It's like, I would love to, but unfortunately, I'm booked with Steven Spielberg. I also like. To, I also suspect he may have been a little outside the price range. The the first kind of option was Sean Connery, like in a movie already where the cast uh, is, <laughs> the is salaries a disproportionate cost for the movie. <laughs> but maybe you get more money if 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 you get Connery on, right? Yeah, if you bring him to Paramount, maybe they would give the extra budget for that. Yeah, but uh, like, and, and, and plan B was like, have nobody. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no offense to any of the other actors who are quite good, but they're not big names. Yeah. Like, you're, there is no Kirstie Alley. There's no um, kind of uh jillian taylor um what's the name of the actor who played she played the mother in child's play oh yes yeah and she was in seventh heaven yeah as well um yeah there's no christopher lloyd even yeah 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 um but yeah i mean again carl montalban (laughs) (laughs) from television's fantasy island (laughs) Uh, but like and, this, and and from um, <laughs> uh, 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 TV Naked Star Trek. Gun, thirty three and a third. <laughs> um, not yet, though. Crucially, yes. I <laughs> <laughs> um, what I, I think is also worth noting in terms of Cyborg, again, Shatner has pointed to televangelism, as we already discussed. Yeah, there is a bit of a nineteen eighties hijackings thing going on here, where there were these waves of hijackings during the seventies and eighties that were often by extremists that were characterized, again, as, as religious extremists in many cases. I'm watching the movie last night, I'm thinking, this is very much a, like a post-Reagan era. The Enterprise has been hijacked by a religious fundamentalist who has taken it off course and is going to, like, land it somewhere. Now, he doesn't make demands, but it is very much, it feels of its moment in that way. Executive decision. <laughs> Kirk gets flushed out the air, like, halfway through. <laughs> um... I think then that's really about it. It is worth noting the movie underperformed at the box office. It had the biggest opening of any Star Trek movie ever, but promptly 
dropped off. The reviews were not positive, to put it mildly. That would be a gentle way of phrasing it. Um, And very much after this, the Star Trek franchise, according to Bennett, this almost killed the franchise. And in fact, this ended Bennett's involvement with the franchise, where the next one ended, obviously, as we talked about, ended up being driven by Nimoy and being driven by Mayer, uh, but not by Bennett. After this, again, tied to the underperformance of the movie and the huge star salaries, Bennett tried to convince Paramount to sign off on a Starfleet Academy movie, which would arguably go on to be a touchstone for the J.J. Abrams movies, where it would jump with Kirk and Spock in the Academy, recast as more affordable actors. I believe the casting that they wanted was they wanted John Cusack to play Spock. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. So um, I was thinking Christian Slater, who's 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 in uh, uh, Star Trek six. Yeah. Because uh, I believe his mother, Helen Slater, was the casting director, but I'm not entirely sure. Let me just get the exact casting that they wanted for for that. Two seconds here. Ethan Hawke was going to be Kirk. Ethan wow. Hawke was on the shortlist for Kirk. Now this like was he'd be a decent Kirk, right? I think he would. And again, what if that was like like a six movie franchise, uh, franchise with Ethan Hawke like going from you know, 1992 until like 2004. And just Hulk not doing anything, never making before sunset and never making any of that. I feel like he could still do them, but like that he would be this kind of uh, big kind of... um, Icon of cinema. Yeah, I suppose he is, but, but like, would he be bigger or would he be smaller for having done that? Well, would he have lost the cultural cachet is the thing as well. Because I think a large part of, like, Hawk's appeal is that he's a guy who... He will do franchise films occasionally, like he did Moon Knight for Marvel or whatever. Sure. But he has that credibility where he's, like, he does what he wants to do, you know? I don't know if that would have cost him that in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. I think Cusack... Cusack, given where Cusack has ended up, would probably not have been. Like, Ethan Hawke, he was probably still at that point where River Phoenix was taking all of his movie parts. (laughs) But that's the thing. This was before, obviously, this was before Dead Poet Society. Yeah. So that's what they're saying. It's like, we had him on the list before Dead Poet Society. It's probably like, if the Starfleet Academy movie had happened, he probably would have been priced out by Dead Poet Society, ironically enough. Right. Um, But still, it's kind of, it's an interesting what if alternate universe where it's like instead of giving the cast one last rodeo we just go back and do a series of prequels which we arguably eventually ended up doing with the kind of chris pine jj abrams movies yeah i feel like early 90s you have a lot of you know young young actors with 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 depth yeah 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 because you've got the emerging indie scenes you've got all these young actors coming out of the indie scene that you could conceivably grab and put into this stuff you take like a johnny depp or a Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> if, if you're like suitably insured. Is, is Robert Downey Jr. has bones. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it, it did almost unfortunately kill the franchise, uh, which is a shame, or kill the film franchise. I suspect the next generation would have been fine, and I suspect they probably still would have gone to next generation movies after next generation. But it is kind of interesting that it's like the franchise roared back to life with the Wrath of Khan, and then within a decade it had kind of like already evaporated all its goodwill. It's just a, an interesting snapshot. Is there anything else you want to say about The Final Frontier? Anything well, that's interesting kind of after one of his most popular movies or the most popular the movies. The most popular yeah, movie, yeah, yeah. Like after, like, again, we talked about it. The, the Voyage Home was record-breaking. It was a movie that was like, yeah, we should make more of this. We should like make a TV show of this that we can put on every week. 
Like that, this so movie it's, was so it's revived. That one that buys you zigs. <laughs> what? And it, it costs you yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like that's that's the thing. It's like that's the one where it's like we should make we should just continue making these and we should make a TV show as well that's weekly. And this is the one where it's like maybe we should just not make this. Maybe we should just not make Star Trek anymore. Maybe maybe it's it's had its time. It's it's done. You know. Yeah. All right, anything else with regards to the movie? Anything in your notes? Anything we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at you? Um, no. Um, no. I, I, I do like... Um, I, I think I've referenced um, that it's funny and that Nimoy gets some quite funny lines. I love his... Um, his 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 response to Bones, where Bones is like, we well, you know we're having fun, and it's like, oh, I'm 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 sorry, we're we're were we having a good time? And <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I I I love his line as well. Um, uh, it's like, please, Kirk, not in front of the Klingons. <laughs> <laughs> like, he goes to embrace to him. him. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I do. I think some like. Again, reading the critical response to this, a lot of the response was like, this is a bad part of the movie. And I'm like, this is actually the one part of the movie I like. I like the camping scenes with the three of them. I find them intensely charming. They are very goofy. They're very gnarly. They're very embarrassing. They're very kooky. You know, they are campy to a certain extent, which is appropriate given they are camping. Yeah. But I I find myself strangely charmed by them. I love the marshmallow coming out of the, <laughs> the space marshmallow. He's got a special like tool for that. Yeah, I, I, See, like, I don't think that replicator is making other things. <laughs> no, it, it seems specifically designed for marshmallows. I love that. And apparently, presumably, Shatner spent God knows how much money building that device. It's like, should we save that for the rock monsters at the climax? Like, I feel, I feel like that's just kind of um, a a plastic case inside a plastic case. With a hole in the top plastic case and a marshmallow. I don't know. Part of me wants to imagine that it's like, part of me wants to imagine that they built like a special model and he had to pick like the right one of three of them. Where Shatner's like, no, 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 the marshmallow dispenser has to be perfect. If audiences don't believe the marshmallow dispenser, they won't believe the rest of the movie. Yeah, this one doesn't make a whirring noise. It's okay, we'll add it after. (laughs) Come back to me when it makes a whirring noise. Um... Oh, and by the way, we should, in terms of like the 60s and so it's just worth noting that apparently the inspiration for Cyborg was Timothy Leary. Um, okay. Which again ties into that idea of this as in some ways the most 60s of the Star Trek movies, the one that's Makes closest sense. tied to the to the original era of the show. I do like, by the way, the, the Ralph Winter quote about the budget. I don't agree that Paramount shortchanged the movie. They didn't give Shatner as much money for the story as he wanted to tell. But remember, Star Trek 2 was done for 12 million, 3 was done for 16 million, and 4 came in a million under budget at 21 million. I have a letter from home for the president of the studio that shows that. And I think we did the fifth movie for around or just under 30 million dollars. So it was much more. But what Shatner wanted to do was a big, grander thing. I don't think more money would have made this movie better. Yeah, it doesn't feel like they had more money than four, really, does it? No, but I, mean, I, I, th- I, I think the 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 great barrier is fine. I think, and again, very famously, as we mentioned, the the first Star Trek movie since the motion picture where the special effects weren't done by Industrial Light and Magic, and I think we talked about the motion picture, the issues with the special effects there. They had to be redone by Doug uh, Tumble from scratch. The issue here is that Paramount apparently took a look at this movie. Special effects were done by a company called Farron and Associates. 
they looked at the special effects for the movie, determined that they were terrible, and then just gave up. They were like, no, this is, this is, this is enough. Like, there are moments with the Klingon Bird of Prey and the Enterprise where it looks like it's a cutout. It looks like somebody printed a picture of the Enterprise and just, like, cut it out and just kind of put it on a star field. The, the special effects are, are not great, but I don't think they're the issue with the movie, to be fair. Yeah. I don't think spending God knows how much more money would make this a better movie. I think no. you start with the script, unfortunately. Um, all right, then. So that then wraps it up. So what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something. We don't have any guests this week. So I'm going to ask Andrew, what would you recommend for listeners? What are you enjoying at the moment? So I struggle a little bit. I'm I'm reading The Age of Innocence, but I haven't finished it, and it's quite good. But um, so I won't recommend that yet. Is that the inspiration for the Scorsese movie? The yeah, well, it's uh, the the Daniel Day Lewis. Yes. One. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, and and Winona Ryder. Yeah, that that's an adaptation of Edith Wharton's yeah. Age of Innocence. Yeah, but I won't recommend that yet. <laughs> um i'll recommend just some old um star when. trek episodes um darmok from the next, next generation. generation is incredible it's it's like a it's not part of an arc but it, it's 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 dealing with kind of the problems of 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 language and a uh, translation and it feels like very uh, topical i guess in a, in a in a time when we're trying to kind of encode um the way we kind of think and communicate into into machines now and trying to 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 create kind of analogies of our own intelligence um also stars i think is a paul winfield from star trek 2 as well he plays the the captain the telluride captain yes which is phenomenal and again phenomenal piece so that's the early fifth season, I believe, if you're looking for it on Netflix or Paramount Plus. And um I guess in in, in the Pale Moonlight, um Deep Space Nine. Sixth season, uh middle of the season, if you're looking for that on Netflix. It's a phenomenal piece of television. It's one of my favorites. It's it it's it's great. Um Can you live with it, Andrew? <laughs> it's um it, it it's it, it's a great um uh, Cisco episode. Sorry, I just had a mental blank. Garrick? Yes. I mean, <laughs> the other thing I think it, about when I think about that episode is Andrew great, Robinson's Garrick. Yeah, it's yeah. a great Garrick episode. Robinson's and, phenomenal. Uh, Robinson's Garrick, work is, Garrick is a tremendous is, character, yeah. yeah. Um, and again, that, that episode is just amazing. It's it's Brooks is phenomenal in that episode. He also did, I think, later that season, Far Beyond the Stars, which he also directed as well as starring in, which is mind-blowing to me. Um, I, I'm a big Deep Space Nine head. I'm a big fan of Brooks. Uh, Brooks is is just amazing. Um, anything else on the recommendation list there? For yeah, me? and I, like I'm I'm not as I'm probably not as much a fan of Brooks. I like Brooks a lot, but it did is a lot of the bombast kind yes. of that. But but it works very well, I think, in in the Pale Moonlight. Um, I, but but that I don't appreciate sometimes the the some of the rest of the time he's great like but but yeah it's just... my, my not to turn that we're never going to talk about Deep Space Nine on this on this podcast because it didn't doesn't have any movies but the thing for me about Brooks is Brooks is we talked about this in the podcast before where I think there are two great Star Trek actors and those are like Leonard Nimoy and Patrick Stewart those are like world class yeah. heavy hitters. You put them up against the best actors in any medium whatsoever, and they will pinch it for you. What I love about 
Brooks is that Brooks is a performance that is like halfway between Shatner and Stewart, where he is, he's trained, I believe, in opera, which makes a lot of sense when you look at that performance. It's big, it's bold, it's very strong. He's capable of doing the grand Shakespearean eloquence that you associate with Stuart, doing the big emotional kind of core that you associate with Stuart, but also doing the larger than life screen presence that you kind of associate with Shatner. The, you are watching that performance and you are transfixed on it because it is so big. And I think that for me, that's, that's what I love about Brooks, the ability to do both of those things simultaneously, um, where it does feel properly operatic for lack of a better word um that will be my defensive brooks uh, yeah as a, as a performer um all right uh, anything else in the recommendations start oh, no, we'll, we'll leave it at that grand uh, You're, yourself darren i'm looking forward to hearing this well you referenced garrick there a moment yes. ago um andrew robinson recently <laughs> mysteriously i couldn't think of, <laughs> of his name <laughs> Well, he's so mysterious. His past yeah. is so mysterious. Andrew's like, he's that guy. He's a tailor. No way. Adjunct. No oh. way. Um, <laughs> yeah. The Wire. The second season episode, The Wire, is phenomenal, which is the one where it's Garrick's past or multiple pasts. They're all lies, weren't they? Which one of them was the truth? Why all of them? But the... Um, he... Robinson wrote what, for my money, is the best Star Trek tie-in book ever written, which is A Stitch in Time, which is... As an actor, he wrote for himself Garrick's biography. He tried to figure out based on what the writers had given him and what he himself had figured would be the life and times of this character. So he would have an internal sense of who this character was when he's playing him. And when the show ended, he basically published that. He polished it. He structured it into a narrative. Uh, and it's written in the style of... It's, it's written in the first person. It's written as a series of letters to Bashir on Deep Space Nine. And recently, um, and this is, we're talking about Star Trek, so I can be a huge freaking nerd. Sure. Recently, um, he recorded an audiobook version of it, ah. which is just incredible. Now, obviously, he is 20 years older, 23, 24 years older than he was when he played the part. When he was playing the part, he had prosthetics on, although unlike, say, the Ferengi actors, those prosthetics weren't around his mouth, so you'd, it's not quite as uncanny as it is hearing Armin Scheimerman play Quark without the mouthpiece but it's incredible it, it, he just slips back into the role so effortlessly um, it's a stitch in time it is available as an audiobook right now uh, I've read the book I read the book a couple of years ago uh, just to reassure myself that it was as good as I thought it was and it is um, and I would wholeheartedly recommend checking out the audiobook particularly if you are a fan of Garrick um, he seems to have changed the text a lot to make... He, he's actually done the work of translating it into an audio memoir, which is, again, fascinating, where it's like it's the it's the autobiography of a fictional character written by the actor, performed by the actor, which is so inside baseball. And I'm like, yeah, I just, I just want to hear Andrew Robinson say the word, my dear doctor, one more time. And it just, it hits the notes perfectly. Other than that... Um, because of that, I was kind of diving into Star Trek books, old Star Trek tie-in books. Uh, off the top of my head, uh, a lot of the David uh, George III books are really worth reading. Um, I really like Serpent Among the Ruins, which is the story of the Enterprise B, as featured in Andrew's favorite movie, Star Trek Generations. <laughs> uh, it's a fascinating attempt to take a character who appeared in a single sequence of Star Trek, Alan Ruck's Captain John Harriman, 
and fashion that into a character who is fully formed and three-dimensional. Um, and then I would also recommend George wrote for the franchise's 60th anniversary, maybe it was 50th anniversary, sorry, George wrote a, tri- a trilogy of books looking at the original cast members or the original characters. He wrote a trilogy where he wrote one book focusing on Kirk, one book focusing on Spock, and the masterpiece of the set, which is not something I had anticipated, is the book focusing on McCoy. I think it's called Providence of Shadows, where what he does is he fashions together all these references you get to McCoy's personal life across the franchise, which are never developed, never expanded on, never put in any context or ever developed, and he fashions them into a portrait of a fully formed three-dimensional character, covering everything from, you know, as we mentioned here, the divorce that was part of the series Bible but never made it into the show thanks to Shatner's meddling, the estranged daughter, uh, his diagnosis with a terminal illness in the third season of Star Trek that never really comes back, uh, things like his appearance in the first episode of The Next Generation, and obviously the big moment here with the euthanizing of his own father, and he does it in just this really beautiful, really sweet way that feels like a biography of a fictional character. I love that I'm like, Darren's favorite literary genre is biographies of Star Trek characters. That seems to be <laughs> what we're getting from this. And then just finally, one more to shout out, because I think... And- they could probably skin classic books. Yeah, and <laughs> just find and replace. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then the last recommendation... It's like, great expectations, but he's a Klingon. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, you, you, you've you done it now. <laughs> um, I would also shout out, uh, I was included uh, in a list, Darren's, yeah, Darren's going to name drop slash humble brag. It's not really humble bragging, it's more just bragging. Um, I was very thrilled to be invited by the Irish Independent to contribute to an article by a series of Irish writers talking about science fiction. One of my co-panelists on that article was Una McCormick, who is a, an Irish writer. Uh, she's written a whole bunch of fiction, both outside and inside franchises, but she wrote The Never-Ending Sacrifice, which is this, as you said, sweeping gone-with-the-wind style historical epic of Cardassian history. That, <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> Andrew's like, yeah, this is my shit. But it's basically, it's the entire history of Deep Space Nine told from the Cardassian perspective. So it follows like the rise and fall of this Car- grand Cardassian family from the end of the Federation Wars during the next generation, through to the collapse of the Obsidian Order, through to the Dominion occupation, through to the Dominion War, through to the Klingon Cardassians or in Federation offensives. And it's just this wonderful, I swear, we'll never go hungry again kind of narrative that is just beautiful. So yes, it is very much a reskinned epic historical novel <laughs> written in the context of the Star Trek franchise. But my fi- final recommendation, I promise... Um, getting properly nerdy. I said earlier we would talk about the Final Frontier and Generations and the weird sense in which they are kind of simpatico. I think there's an overlap between the two in that they are kind of spiritual movies in their own way. They're very existential. They're very abstract in a way the other movies aren't. Generations is like, I feel like properly developed and paid off. I'm not not suggesting a qualitative (laughs) comparison. I need to be clear on that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe in what they're attempting. Yes, and I think thematically you can maybe see echoes of it. Like, because it is, because it, it, Picard goes to heaven in Generations, basically, to a certain extent. You can read that. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. can read that movie is about going to heaven. Um, and 
we've talked on this podcast before. Not a huge, I'm not a huge fan of the modern Star Trek shows, and that's fine. People like them, and I'm really glad that they do. They just don't always work for me, well, and that's fine. They're they ruining don't have your childhood. They yeah. are. They're retroactively ruining my... I, I, I can't sleep you, at night. You can't enjoy those things anymore. Yeah, I know. Like, we, we certainly couldn't have spent an hour and a half talking about <laughs> Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, because those shows exist that I don't necessarily love and enjoy. Uh, what I will say is I found myself oddly charmed by Lower Decks, which is the animated sitcom, and there is an episode in the third season, which is Crisis Point 2 Paradoxes, which is the show mocking the feature films. It's it's the show doing that thing that we talked about. We're going, are Star Trek movies really Star Trek? Like, they do all this stuff in them that isn't very Star Trek-y, like shooting lasers at everything and blowing stuff up and punching people in the face that we don't really associate with the show. And Crisis Point, which was a first season episode, did that very well. It, it was very obviously riffing on, like, First Contact and The Wrath of Khan and stuff like that. Uh, what Crisis Point 2 does, which I, I love, is it it riffs on both the final frontier and generations, where it's this story of, like, one of the characters in the show suffers a bereavement and a loss. So they go to the holodeck to create one of these spectacle blockbuster franchises that is basically a Star Trek movie. But they keep pushing at the edge of the holodeck program, looking for, like, meaning and looking for purpose uh, they keep pressing into the background details of this program that's meant to be disposable entertainment and end up kind of confronting God through this holotech narrative that's meant to be a big, dumb blockbuster. And for me, watching it, I th- and I think very consciously, it's styled to be a defense of the final frontier and a defense of generations, which is this idea of can blockbuster Star Trek grapple with big questions like, what is God? What is heaven? What is the point of life and existence? And I found it really sweet because, as we've mentioned, whatever about Generations, a movie I'm certain we will talk about at some point, Final Frontier is is kind of maligned, and, and we've maybe been quite harsh to it here. I found it really sweet that this episode of, like, this animated sitcom was like, no, but there is kind of something sweet in trying to answer what is God through, like, Bill, Bill Shatner's ego trip. Um, I just, I found it, I, I really enjoyed it. And if you are not a big fan of the new Star Trek shows, it may even be worth an exploration if you just like Generations and Star Trek V. Those are my recommendations. All right, I think that wraps it up then. Um, we are at the 250. You can find us on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, wherever good podcasts are found. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, on X, whatever the hell that service is called. We will be back next week with the wonderful Kira Maloney, the fantastic Dean Buckley from The Sunday, and we will be talking about Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, just in time for the release of the sequel, just in time for Mickey Mouse entering the public domain. We'll be talking about the slasher movie from last year, a new entry on the bottom 100. Take care, guys. Look forward to seeing you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.